is Australia. This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned. But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. Now we have a special guest on today to help us decode and break down the world of politics as we fall over the finish line, as we get towards the end of this hectic, hectic campaign. Her name is Claire Kimball. She has quite the resume, done a lot, press secretary, political advisor, corporate high flyer, places like Woolworths, and the founder of an independent media organisation called The Squeeze, which is uh, sending out a daily and weekly podcast, email, and lots of other content to hundreds of thousands of Australians around the country, keeping them informed about their news. And she's joining us today to give us a little bit of a review, preview, and an insight into the campaign trail as well. Claire Kimball, thanks very much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to being with you on that CV. I think that's going to be certainly a triumph and a high point. Get it up onto LinkedIn, hopefully. Um, now, <laughs> one of the things I wanted to talk about first was you were a political advisor to a Nationals MP and then you became the press secretary to Tony Abbott. Now, everyone is familiar with Speedo enthusiast Tony Abbott. Could you tell us <laughs> a little bit about how you got involved in that? Uh, what happened was uh, I was working for Larry Anthony, who was the MP for Richmond. He is the son of Doug Anthony. He'd come from Mwollumbar, long-time yep. family from up that way. So Larry had the seat of Richmond, which went from Tweed Heads down past Byron Bay. He was the most marginal member of Parliament, and that's why I went to work for him. I was really interested in marginal seat mm. campaigning. We won in 2001, and we lost in 2000. 2004. So at that point, I was thinking, look, it's probably time to go and do something else. That's been a pretty good stint in that kind of realm. And they asked me whether I'd stay on and if I'd work for someone like Tony. Tony, of course, was a very entrenched uh, and senior figure in the Howard government in those days. And that seemed like a really interesting opportunity. I didn't really know Tony other than passing him in the corridors and saying g'day in those days. But uh, I worked for him for the final term of the Howard government, mm. then, you know, the people of Australia told me I needed to go and get a new job. So that was very <laughs> good of them at 2007. Uh, tried a couple of things. I stayed in touch with Tony when he decided that he was going to have a tilt at Rolling Malcolm in 2009. I promised him that I'd come back for a year because there was an election campaign imminent. I thought that would be a really interesting opportunity to be press sec to the leader of the opposition mm. with an end date in mind. We got a lot closer in 2010 than we ever thought that we would, but opposition life just wasn't for me. So I was very happy to go off and try something else. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, there you go. A little bit going on. For those outside of politics, how would you describe the daily role and the weekly role of a press secretary? 
Yeah, so certainly at that senior level, when you're working for a cabinet minister or a leader of a party, it's pretty intense. Your day starts really early. Certainly if you're working for a leader, you're on and probably a really big part of the first phone call of the day, which is usually around 6 or 6.30am, and you need to be across things significantly Mm. because that's when, of course, the ball starts rolling. And then usually you're with them for the rest of the day and making those calls, talking to them about how things are going, what needs to be done, what needs to be said, how to get the upper hand, the things that you want to start talking about, how you get that message through. For me, when I was on the road with Tony during that year, when we were leading up to that 2010 election campaign, I was basically with him every day and most moments of the day Mm. as we started on the campaign trail, really, when we got to the start of that year, even though that election campaign wasn't into the second half. So he and I just went basically to everything. I went to all the fundraising dinners. I went to all the events. You're really part of their lives and they're part of yours. And it's a, it's a long trail that, you know, in those days was starting at 5.30 in the, in the morning and probably wasn't finishing until about 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. Mm. Well, look, I mean, that's something I guess that sets you in very good stead to be getting out an early morning podcast and email to the good people of Australia. (laughs) But Sarah, so a campaign trail, I'm assuming it gets way more hectic once the election campaign is called. It's basically you guys are inseparable for the six or 10 or 12 weeks that it goes on. Yeah, and the campaign's a different beast altogether. And I do have some sympathy, I must say, for Anthony Albanese having a look at what sort of started off with his campaign through to getting a bit of um, comfort, I guess, in the rhythm of what happens in a campaign because it's very different to what happens when you're outside of that campaign period. Mm. So when you're just sort of in a normal day, you really can go at your own pace. But when you're in a campaign, you've got a pack of Canberra press gallery journos travelling with you, which brings a really different vibe to things. You're not just travelling somewhere and rocking up to the local media, which will have, you know, their local Channel 9, ABC, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, coming along. You've got the Canberra Gallery with you and that brings a really different dynamic. You've also got a lot of people from the inside at you all the time. All of a sudden, a lot more people have a lot more interest in what you're doing, not yep. just on a daily basis, but on a hourly basis uh, and how you're handling all of that. So what was a rhythm before where you probably got a couple of people and you're just getting through the day and you do, you know, a check-in at the end of it or at the start of it, all of a sudden becomes a very intense exercise where you've Mm. got the party head office at you, you've got the pollsters at you, you've got the media travelling with you and it takes a little bit to settle in and I think that's what we saw with Albanese, getting that pace and getting that rhythm in the campaign just took him a little bit, I think, to get used to. Mm. Starting off with his campaign I think has been, you know, telling the media – I'll take all your questions, you know, bring it on. We're going to talk for hours. It's going to be great. Through to when we saw yesterday, you know, getting the grumps and walking off after 15 minutes or so. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's come on quite a journey and, and it is a different thing. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about that and um, ask you about some of those big moments, particularly from the Albanese campaign in a little bit. But just on the life as a press sec, were there any kind of things that you had to do to just get a moment or just go, I need to turn my phone off for half an hour or I need 10 minutes to just kind of <laughs> reset and just take a breath? 
<laughs> I love the idea that you can turn your phone yeah, off. Yeah, well, half an that, hour. the other one I wanted to ask was about, you know, what was the longest period of time without a buzz on your phone? 15 seconds, 10 seconds? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, look, no, it's relentless and you, you just can't walk away mm. from it. So, you know, everyone is on and it's that day where you, you know, the, well, day that turns into weeks, that turns into, you know, a month and a half or, uh, as we know from the Turnbull campaign a couple of times ago, you know, eight weeks of it, which just sounded mm. like hell on earth. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's not a moment. You you really just have to go with it. But yeah. the good thing about a campaign is when you're working for a leader, you've got a lot of people around you as well that are there to support you. Yeah. So you can sort of carve off some of the manual tasks because there's advances who are doing a lot. There's also people with inside the party who are taking some of the strain in their media office in campaign headquarters. So you can be a bit more strategic, which getting the time in your head to actually try and put the big pieces together, mm. you have to be really disciplined to do that rather than just working through the daily tactics. Yep, yep. Um, the tactics can become very consuming and they are important to execute every single day. But getting the headspace to be a bit strategic is a real discipline and I think you can see the campaigns and the people who have experience that are able just to take a bit of a step back and put the big pieces together. Yeah, okay, very interesting. And when you kind of are getting towards the end of it, is Election Day, I'm assuming there's a big, big sigh of relief, as a day itself, is Election Day a little bit cruisier because it's all said and done, you know, you're getting the photo, you're organising the photos of the ballot being dropped into the box and then it's like, all right, well, we sit and hope now. (laughs) No, it doesn't quite work like that. Um, What certainly we did and I know others have done is that you're campaigning until that last vote is in at 6pm and you want people to see you doing that as well, that you're not taking it for granted, Mm -hmm. that it's something that you are actually so committed to that you just won't drop until that final whistle blows. So it's a long day as well. I remember we visited, I think, 14 seats on election day. It was a long day and we started across... Yeah, yeah. I, oh, and I think so we, is that Sydney? Is it just frantically no, going we around No, I think, yeah, we did a handful in Melbourne and then I think we came back to Sydney and kept going. And you, yeah, right. you, you're trying to keep the media with you and mm. not so close so that you've got a bit of flexibility. It's a moving feast and yeah. it's exciting and it's really good fun and it's great to see the people out actually doing it and the campaign workers and it actually in action. There's some resolution to it actually mm. happening. But, yeah, you don't really drop until that 6pm whistle is blown in Western Australia. Yeah, okay. And then when the whistle is blown, is it a little bit like a sporting game where we might be having a couple of beers on the sideline afterwards and and then, you know, rolling into the campaign function. What does the night look like? Are we, you know, if the writing's on the wall nice and early, is the champagne cork going off and everyone's going berserk? If the writing's on the wall the other way, nice and early, is it, all right, yeah. well, you know, phone's going on silent, we're off on a two-day bender, we'll pick this all <laughs> up on Monday, see where we're at? Yeah. Look, uh, we were staying, I remember, and I think the campaign still do it. You stay at the hotel where your function is at, so then you're on hand. And it's not just you, it's the broader team as well. Mm. To your point about putting your phone down, it was quite exciting, I think, at that point where you could actually put the phone down and have a 
20-minute shower and not be so worried that you're missing something or that you have to, you know, stay on top of everything. You can actually take a bit of a breather. At that point, I was a bit too tired to have a drink, I must say. <laughs> a couple of drinks and you're just falling asleep at the yeah, back of the exactly. hall. Exactly. Yeah, just a just a one glass screamer at that yeah. point, I think. Yeah, it's it's pretty exhausting. So there is that sort of, okay, I can just take a breath for Mm. a second. But then you're just really excited about seeing the numbers come in because you've put so much, you know, blood, sweat and tears into what's just gone down, not just in the last six weeks, but, you know, for some of these campaigns for probably three years. Mm. I'm sure the Labor team, which seems to have been a pretty steady team for the last three years, you know, they would have been campaigning around Albanese for a long time now. So, and doing lots of visits and visiting lots of polling booths. So you're actually really interested in in the micro detail of how some of those things are actually starting to come through. Mm. Yeah, okay. And um, on the campaigns now as well, like I imagine some campaigns are a lot more desirable than others to be on. You know, some is a much easier battle. I imagine Kevin 07 would have been, there would have been the buzz, the excitement. Tony Abbott's 2013 campaign would have been easier than some others. Where would you rank the difficulty and the um, challenges of Scott Morrison's 2022 federal re-election campaign? Yeah, probably the experience that I had, I guess, was in 2007 mm. when that classic, when, you, when you're up, you're up, and when you're down, you're down. Mm. And when you're down, nothing goes right. Mm. And that's just the way it goes sometimes. And there's no relief that, okay, well, like, this just isn't going to work. It's just not our campaign. We're going to lose. It's, Mm. you know, you're still in there fighting every single time, but it just feels like it's hard not to take it personally that it's just not going your way. Yeah, you're just slugging and slugging and slugging and Absolutely. You just got to keep showing up and it's as much effort, if not more, as the the team that seems to be doing it a lot easier Mm. where things just seem to be working for them. There's a sense of great unfairness about all of that and a lot of it's not of your own making you've got no control over it but I don't get a sense certainly out of anyone that I've spoken to in coalition headquarters that they're feeling like that there's this great tide against them I think they've had their tough days but Mm. certainly maybe they're great actors but there seems to be a lot of buoyancy there same with the Labor campaign there's a lot of buoyancy. I, I don't get that sort of mood moderation that one side is feeling really great and the other's not so much. I, th- I think they're just at it and chipping yeah, away okay. on both sides. Whereas, say, in 2007, that might have been a little bit different? Oh, yeah, there was a great sense that that just wasn't going to be the campaign that you were going to (laughs) win. Yeah, okay. And trying to chip away at that, not just in that campaign, but for the months ahead of that. You know, I remember still that interest rate decision coming through in the middle of the campaign in 2007. It was like, oh, yeah, okay, that's of course that's going to happen because (laughs) it's never happened before, but of course that's going to happen. Whereas this time when that interest rate hike sort of came through, it didn't seem to have that sort of, oh, God, here's another thing that's just Mm. gone wrong. Um, It just seemed to roll on and I think the circumstances are very different. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so you're getting the feeling from both sides that it is still quite tight and anything could happen on election day. Yeah, and look, 
you know, who knows? I, I, as I say, maybe they're, they're great actors. Maybe they're just sort of spinning lines. But, mm. yeah, and who knows what their internal polling is saying. But, yeah, it does seem, certainly looking at, at it from their perspective, like they've got some optimism that mm. when you get down to the micro detail of those, not just those seats but areas within seats, mm. that there's definitely some hope there, yeah. not just on the coalition side but on the Labor side yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Morrison's team may be hoping for a Mark Latham moment from Anthony Albanese right on the uh, <laughs> right on the final whistle. Yeah, wasn't that something? <laughs> With this campaign more generally, what are some of the kind of things that have really stood out to you or hallmarks of the campaign that have potentially been different or eyebrow-raising over the last kind of six months? Uh, first thing, it feels like we've now got a two-week voting process rather than a election day. Mm. I think that's been a really big shift. Of course, last time, about 30% of the electorate voted early, whether that was through pre-poll voting stations or whether that was postal voting. So it was a lot of the electorate. This time they were sort of thinking the Electoral Commission that it would come in around 40%. Mm. I've heard some numbers as high as 50%, thinking that a half of us might vote not on election day, they'll they'll do it early. So shifting to sort of like a, a two-week voting period feels like a, a really big change this time around and I think some of the campaign is a lot more structured uh, around that opening of the early polls two weeks out. I think that's a real change. It'll be interesting to see, I think, whether that's something that the Electoral Commission wants to embed or whether they want to try and go back to a system where you really need a good excuse to vote early. So we'll see how that goes. That certainly stood out to me. I think the other thing that's been really interesting is the teal independence and yeah. this sort of real focus on the conversation around this group. Of course, of course, they're not a party. They're a group of people who are funded by one entity and, of course, others. But that sort of sense around a platform, I know they say they don't have a common platform, but, you know, they do seem to have a lot of similarities and it seems to feel like a movement. That has been really, really something that will shake out on election day and I don't really know how that's going to shake out and I think that's one of the really interesting and exciting parts of this polling day. Yeah, the Teals one has been fascinating to see how that plays out all along, mostly along the eastern seaboard, but across the country. Mm. The Greens are hopeful that they're going to be with the balance of power and be able to call the shots in terms of their wish list that they've got for parliament if they form a government with, say, a Labor Party. In terms of the Teals, you're saying they're not a party, but they do they are galvanised around climate change, the large part, and also something like federal ICAC, stuff like that. Yeah. If, say, there is a strong action on climate climate change and we do see progress on that front, do the Teals find a way to pivot and maintain relevance or is it just something that was kind of a movement that will then dissipate or is it something that really has kind of shown the nation that we can have independence, we can have separate voices outside these major parties and this is something that will be a part of our democracy going forward, do you think? Really great questions and I don't know the answer. Part of it too is what it does to the Liberal Party vote. So just to take a step beyond, what they have been targeting are seats when you look at, at the demographic where they're moderate Liberals. Mm. They are people who have 
not just a, a good standing within the party, but they also carve off a particular type of Liberal voter. I think when you look at what will happen this weekend, it will be a really big point, I think, as much for the Liberals about exactly where they position because you've got Clive Palmer and One Nation coming at them from the right. You've got these climate-focused, integrity-focused independents coming at them from the left. Where the seats are that they seem to be quite successful in, and we'll, again, see how this sort of plays out, I think, on Election Day, are these suburban seats and regional seats That certainly seems to be Mm. what's coming out. So Parramatta, for example, Greenway here in Sydney, Aston in Melbourne, these are seats that have that sort of classic Howard Battler, aspirational, hardworking, you know, the quiet Australians, I think, as Scott Morrison has called them. (laughs) Whether Kuyong and Wentworth remain actually blue ribbon liberal seats anymore, I think is a really big question. Mm. I was talking to someone who's very close to the demographics and the polling in Melbourne. And what they say is that Kuyong, if you looked at what's a, a classic liberal seat, it probably doesn't fit the benchmark. More than half of Kuyong voters are under 35. It's a young demographic, whereas probably what I assumed was that it was much like, you know, probably Warringah here in Sydney, Mm. that there's this sort of really affluent suburbs um, that have very high-powered, high-income, older people. But that's not the case in a lot of these seats. So I think there's a big reckoning, not just for what happens with this group of people who are probably liberal small L voters that are interested in climate and interested in those sorts of issues that the Teal independents are very thoroughly prosecuting. But there's a reckoning as well for the Liberal Party about who their true base is now. And that was sort of something we saw with the Labor Party after the 2019 election. There was the whole, Mm. the swathe in Queensland and that was, you know, there were issues there with their stance on climate change, et cetera, et cetera. And they seemed to have to do a lot of soul searching to try and reconfigure exactly who was their base and how are they going to represent them. You think we might see something like that with a Liberal Party after this election? I think they're going to have to. And Mm. look, They might win those seats. We might see Josh Frydenberg and Dave Sharma and Trent Zimmerman returned, certainly on the numbers. It looks close in some and it looks a bit more safe in others. But we'll see, I think. But Mm. when it comes down to really a lot of what the Liberal Party looks forward to, I think there are big questions that they're going to have to answer. And look, there's a couple of ways to do it. You can look at the at the numbers in a really strategic way because the numbers don't lie. I dare say, though, they'll probably need to go through quite an emotional process where they start thinking about people and policy. And I think that's a much more difficult thing for them to do. Yeah, right. Well, I guess we'll see how it all plays out after Saturday. Mm. I had a couple more questions, quick ones to roll through here. And I was curious to know, as someone who's been on the inside and outside of the political machine, your take on the gotcha questions and the theme of journalists asking gotcha questions over the last kind of few weeks that we've seen. What have you made of that? There's been a lot of people saying various different things about it in terms of accountability and, you know, politicians being across this stuff and also about it, you know, cheapening the political debate. You know, we're not talking about actual policy if we're just asking people to do pop quizzes on the spot. What have you made of it all? (laughs) Gotcha questions have been around since politics started. I don't Mm. think 
the gotcha question is new. What's been quite different, I think, has been that set up around, you know, give me the rate, nominate the Mm. number, tell me exactly what it is in that term rather than it being an important part of the the conversation. But look, when you go back and I've read that transcript a couple of times of day one on the election trial Mm. with Anthony Albanese and when you sort of go through that whole transcript, that's not how it started. What happened was it became very obvious that, Anthony Albanese didn't know the unemployment rate. Mm. And after about three goes at it, it became that blunt. And of course, when we're watching the TV news or reading about it online, it looks like just yeah, a straight up, tell me the rate. What actually happened was that there were three or four signs before that, that it was heading towards that car crash moment. And I think part of the media handling, you know, if if that was someone who was really, really experienced and had done a campaign before, you would have called time on that press conference. Well, and truly before it got to that because you could see where it was heading. But we were back in the days when Albanese was in his, I'm going to take all the questions, let's just go, we're going to do it. He's not doing that anymore. So there's a bit of sort of craft Mm. in actually making sure that things don't get to that moment. And I think we haven't seen those moments because they've stepped up and made sure that it hasn't come to that. But the gotcha questions, look, I want to know that the – person who is leading the country, particularly when we're talking about really tricky economic circumstances, knows what the unemployment rate is. Mm. Like, I I just want to know that. And I don't think it's unreasonable to expect our leaders to know that kind of information. From a press sec point of view, is it something that he should have just known himself or should there have been cheat sheets on these certain things? You know, the briefings and going, let's get you across this. Let's make sure you're on top of these numbers. So when you're fronting up on day one, you can roll with them. They would have had the cheat sheets. I I would be very surprised if they didn't. But, you know, we're all human. And Mm. I think it's, you know, to give him the benefit of the doubt probably just slipped his mind. But, you know, that wasn't really clearly, I think, explained afterwards. I think the team let it sort of get to that point of this guy doesn't know what he's on top of. And I think, yeah, they would have all of that infrastructure and sometimes you just forget stuff or sometimes you just misspeak. And I don't know whether that's the worst thing in the world, but, you know, and I don't think most voters think it's the worst thing in the world either. I think we're all pretty reasonable people. But, you know, it's very easy to make fun of and in the heat of a campaign these things become about bigger things and Mm -hmm. to the point of what happened to Anthony Albanese is that it dominated then a week of campaigning. Yeah, these things can happen fast and then all of a sudden it's rolling and, you know, the 24-hour media cycle, it's on top of it, there's stuff on TikTok, memes, etc. Yeah, yeah, and we're just seeing that that awkward stumble with the tongue poking out. Yeah, yeah. Making memes out of it, terrible. Yeah, conservative (laughs) Western Queensland newspapers just going in on it. um, Exactly. (laughs) On the managing of our leaders and politicians in the campaign cycle. I just wanted to know from our perspective, or from my perspective, it feels like we haven't seen a lot of fronting up from government ministers appearing on programs, giving one-on-one interviews and all that sort of stuff. It feels like there is a real lack of accountability. You know, we don't want to go and sit down on this program because Mm. we are going to get hauled over the coals for certain stuff. Prime Minister, it was sitting down with Lee Sales on 7.30 the mm. other night was celebrated as like, how good's this? The Prime Minister's going to be on 7.30 mm. tonight. When, you know, it feels like a publicly elected official, it 
should just be expected that he is fronting up and sitting on these programs and answering questions. Mm. Do you think there has been a little slide in the accountability for our government politicians and politicians on both sides really of being able to pick and choose when they want to do media and how they want to do that stuff? It's really hard to explain how much pressure there is on the inside and the lack of forgiveness if you do have those human moments. That, of course, then leads to a cramping up and a restriction and central headquarters or prime minister's office or leader of the opposition's office wanting to control things because those slip-ups can cost you a day and you don't have many days to get it right. Usually on those days, you're actually announcing something else that a whole lot of people have put a lot of time and effort into. And it's just Um, gone. (laughs) And it's just gone and you can't do anything about it. So I think the lack of forgiveness of the media cycle has led to this. And look, to be honest, I, I think there's a bit of a disjoint between the way people want to be communicated with these days and what the media cycle looks like. I don't know many people, particularly given two years of COVID, are much interested in watching, you know, 20-minute, 30-minute, 40-minute press conferences. It's just not the way we consume information anymore. Yeah, we've Um, had enough of hearing how many cases there are each day. Yeah, it's the worst. And, Mm. like, let's hope we never have to do that again. I think there's a, a, a way for the political parties to communicate better and to make sure that people uh, from across the team are better represented talking about what they're doing. I also think there's a better way for the media to keep them accountable and to convey that information in a way that people want to consume it. I don't know many people these days, very sadly, that are consuming newspapers, but you can see the way the cycle is still timed. It's for that newspaper release when we get to a campaign in a way that the rest of the cycle doesn't work. There's not a lot of news that breaks in the newspaper in the morning, but for some reason in this campaign, it's been following that old cycle. I think there's a bit of a reckoning to come on all of that. And look, more transparency is good, but I think it's really difficult for anyone in politics to front up when it is just such a brutal, unnuanced, if that's a word, you know, sort of, I think people are a lot more interesting and interested in the information than the media gives them credit for and the political parties give them credit for as well. Yeah. So that maybe there needs to be a bit more of an acknowledgement of the different sides of the relationship and a kind of a working together going forward to get the best service for the Australian people. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm consuming all of it as I know you are. And there's a certain, you know, sort of, I guess, comfort in consuming that information in the way that we've done, not just last year, but the election campaign before that, you know, when I think back and, you know, we have conversations like this about what happened in 2010, it's not a lot that's changed in terms of, you know, the way these campaigns are run. But I think there's a way to do it. It's just whether the media can keep up with that and actually change their models so that things are just a little bit more dynamic and a bit more engaging. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see if the media is uh, that keen on doing that. Now, we are a couple of days away from the election, so I just wanted to finish up with one last question. You have told us that both sides are quite confident and mm. um, you know it's all finely balanced, so we won't ask for a prediction about Thank the you. final result. <laughs> but we would like to know where will Claire Kimball be from the hours of 6 to 
8.30 potentially if it's (laughs) on the wall nice and early or midnight on Saturday night. What does election night look like for you? I'm the worst guest for an election night because I want I want the remote. I want to be able to be flicking through everything as I want oh, to. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've got an iPad in hand as well with the AEC feed so I can look for myself. I'm not much interested in com- in conversation with anyone about how things are going unless they've got an iPad and they're finding things that I'm not finding. But, look, there will definitely be a theme drink. I'm not quite sure what that is yet. I've got to think about that. Yeah, um, what could it be? There'll probably be some tacos. That's yep. a bit of an election night staple because at least you can keep your taco in one hand and the iPad in the other. That works quite well. Yeah, no, I'm the worst guest for any of these any things. Any shouting so at the TV? I mean, there, there can be worse <laughs> guests, I reckon. People shouting at the TV, <laughs> carrying on. No, it's a very quiet thing. A lot of mumbling, a lot of mumbling going on, not a lot mumbling, of Mumbling, processing of information <laughs> and election-themed drinks. That, it's exciting, isn't it? I know. You're it very is. jealous. You haven't got an invite <laughs> to that. Well, look, maybe 2025 we can sort something out there. That sounds good. <laughs> Just want to say thank you very much for joining us. It's been very insightful and, um, yeah, great preview as we as we get very close now to the election day of the federal election 2022 exciting time so yeah thanks very much for jumping on with us an absolute pleasure enjoy the tacos enjoy the drinks enjoy the mumbling (laughs) talk to you soon thanks claire (laughs) bye-bye cheers